0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend this to a friend? This week, we're talking about HSBC partnering with Nova Credit to offer international credit history checks. This is a brilliant initiative that makes it easier for people who migrate from one country to another to take their credit history with them so that they can do things like get a credit card or buy a house so they've got somewhere to live or even, frankly, take out a rental agreement. So fantastic, great work by HSBC and Nova Credit to do that. Mercedes Benz is rolling out in car payments via its app and we talked about what's the killer use case for this because if you've already got to get out of the car to kind of fill it up with fuel what's the big deal about paying in the car and then we thought about parking and all the different apps that you often have to download for every single car park you've ever visited so in-car payments are coming it's just it may not be that fuels the killer application and where would you hide your money One unfortunate criminal was caught after wrapping £70,000 of stolen money in tinfoil like a sandwich. This hapless criminal decided to try and avoid attention by driving the wrong way down the road. So we talked about some of the strange places that we've come across or hidden uh, cash ourselves, and of course about the fact that a lot of people don't carry cash anymore. So we get into all of this and much more on today's show. We'll be back after these messages.
1: Hey folks, we have super-duper exciting news. The shortlist for this year's 11FS Awards is officially live. We asked you, the incredible Fintech Insider community, to help us choose the deserving winners of the 11FS Awards, and your response was outstanding. You voted in record numbers and it's now time to see if your favorite fintech companies made the shortlist. With a total of 10 different awards up for grabs on the big night, including categories like best experience design, fintech for good, best use of AI, and consumer game changer, there is a lot to look forward to. Don't wait, explore that full shortlist now at 11fsawards.com. That is 11fsawards.com. And be sure to stay tuned to all of our channels to find out who will take home one of the coveted 11FS award trophies on Wednesday, 15th of November. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto, it features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com Forward slash demo.
0: Welcome to episode seven hundred and eighty-eight of FinTech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at Eleven FS. I'm joined this week on FinTech Insider News by three great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in FinTech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by Colin Galster, Head of International at Nova Credit. It's a great pleasure to have you back on the show, Colin. Please, can you tell our newer listeners a little bit about who you are and what you're doing at Nova Credit?
2: Thanks, Benjamin. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a member of the, the founding team of Nova Credit. We are a data and analytics infrastructure company. We're best known for our few products, including our product called the Credit Passport, which is a cross-border credit data product we'll be talking about a little bit today. We also have a number of other products that support cash flow underwriting, verification of income. I look after our global expansion efforts, and so I'm excited to be here today and talk more about that.
0: Well, we're excited to have you, so thank you for joining us. We're also excited to give a warm FinTech Insider welcome to Amelia Isaacs, senior reporter at Altvike. Thank you so much for joining us, Amelia. Um, How's the busy world of fintech news treating you? And do you have a particular news beat?
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, Yeah, as you say, very busy times in the world of fintech and a lot of new products and exciting things coming up in the pipeline for AltFi as well, which is always exciting. So I cover everything and anything in the sphere of fintech currently, so whether that's Payments, savings, investments, wealth, risk, you name it. At the moment, we're covering any and all of it under the fintech umbrella. So um, a pretty broad range of interesting topics on our radar.
0: Well, welcome and thank you for joining us. And we're also delighted to welcome Sean Puckrin, Vice President of Product at Checkout.com. Sean, please, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, uh, your role and all the great work you're doing at Checkout.com, please?
4: Sure. Uh, firstly, thank you for, for having me on the show. Um, yeah. So so Checkout, for those who don't know, is a, is an acquirer and a payment processor. So we work with merchants to process their payments uh, and we do that across the world. Um, you know, I look after our core payment products, so our acquiring gateway authentication uh and tokenization products uh, within uh, within the company so yeah look, we we've recently launched our, our network tokens and, and real-time account update products so hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that but uh, but yeah i cover a, a pretty broad range of uh, the things we do at checkout
0: thank you well welcome to all three of you thank you so much for joining us and with that let's get into the news So the first story we want to cover today comes from Nova Credit, which is that HSBC has partnered with Nova Credit to become the first UK bank to offer access to international credit history. So the new partnership between HSBC and Nova means that newcomers to the UK can now use their international credit history when applying for a credit card. The announcement is the first of its kind from a UK bank. So new and existing HSBC customers can choose to share their credit history from a current list of 12 countries. Australia, Brazil, Canada, the Dominican Republic, India, Kenya, Mexico, Nigeria, the Philippines, Spain, Switzerland, and the US. And that was quite a long list to read out, so well done. (laughs) HSBC has seen a 79% year-on-year increase in credit card approval rates for newcomers to the UK with credit history from those eligible countries. And Nova Credit is the world's only cross-border credit bureau. Currently, more than 10 million in people in the UK were born overseas, and 95% of the country's net population growth comes from immigration. Colin, this sounds like quite a big deal for, for Nova Credit and great news for a, a group of customers. Can you tell us what this means and you know how the partnership changes what HSBC already does? Sure, of course.
2: Maybe the place to start, actually, is to take the vantage point of a newcomer to the UK Every day thousands of people move to the UK and they're moving for uh fundamentally moving for better opportunities to make better life for themselves and they are physically moving across a border but their financial identity does not move with them and so despite having a track record of experience with financial products and credit and lending in their home country upon arriving in the UK they're starting from scratch they appear to be a totally unknown variable without having the benefit of that financial reputation that has been left behind um, there and available for them. And so the um, ability to access their home country credit history in this context is a really meaningful accelerant and catalyst to getting started in, on one's new life in the UK um, and be able to empower that individual to benefit from their good behavior in their home country. Um, we we first started working on this problem in 2016. Um, we started out as a US-based company, again, on that observation that people were moving to the United States, but they were having to start over from scratch. Um, we began working on this. Our first um, flagship customer in the US was with American Express, um, and we spent the better part of last year building the foundations to be able to deliver the same capability, which goes by the name Nova Passport, into the UK. Um, And we're very excited to be partnering with HSBC and be able to announce this relationship. Uh, You you listed out very um, accurately the 12 countries that uh, HSBC is currently using. But of course, the, the vision for the product is to be able to support all corridors of migrants. So if you are coming not just from the UK to the US, which is where the product started, but now being able to support people moving from the US to the UK or Canada to the UK, or for that matter, the UK to Singapore, we want to ultimately be able to serve of those corridors. And so this expansion represents a major uh, advance forward on that front. Um, In terms of HSBC, you you asked kind of how does it differ from they serve this this population today. Um, At this point now, with the benefit of this capability, anyone who is applying for an HSBC credit product now has the ability to benefit from their home country credit footprint and and utilize that as part of their application um, submission. Um, HSBC, of course, is well known to be one of the you know the world's global bank. They have a um, long-standing strategy to serve newcomers globally. Um, why do they have that strategy? Well, there's there's good business reasons. People who are global citizens they tend to be upwardly mobile, and so we know this this segment is highly profitable and highly attractive from a business standpoint. Um, but it's also na- a natural starting point for HSBC because of their global brand footprint.
0: Yeah, I and mean, you're right. It's a it's a very natural fit for HSBC, given, given their branding. I mean, there's a little bit of me that's tempted to sort of ask, well, how come they hadn't done this before? And I realize that's not necessarily a fair question to ask you, but presumably they were pretty enthusiastic in the conversations with you and pretty keen to, to, to do this.
2: It's probably not for want of trying. I think it's fundamentally a, a data access problem that the infrastructure just simply didn't exist. And so HSBC has been historically fundamentally limited in its ability to know a person on an individual level when they show up in a, in a newcomer context. And now, um, by virtue of having that infrastructure built and being able to benefit from it, they can actually treat individuals as individuals um, and actually right-size their offerings in terms of credit products to people. So um, you can assess people for uh, you can approve them at a higher rate. I think the, the stated number that HSBC shared publicly is around an 80% increase in their approval rates. Um, but they can also, also offer better terms, better pricing terms, better line assignments, um, better tailored and fit to the individual credit products by virtue of knowing the individual at, a, at that level
0: sean what do what did you think of this you must see other sides of this problem you know through all the merchants that you have that maybe are, have customers who are struggling to buy because they they are themselves migrants and they haven't got the right type of credit card or whatever what what did you think of this is this is this exciting news do you see this as a big deal
4: i mean it's definitely a big deal i think um you know one of the we, we kind of have the the main similar problem we have is is verifying merchants so people who want to apply to to be a merchant, we have to go through a, a long vetting process because of uh, the the regulatory environments that we sit in, anti-money laundering, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a it's a similar problem in that it's a data access problem. It's how do we verify the individuals one who are they say they are, but then their creditworthiness and it's hard, right? And and uh, you know so the, the the services that exist to stitch that data together and present it back in a consumable and actionable way, you know, make a massive difference to to the ability for companies like us to to do our business. So uh, when Colin wants to turn his attention to uh, to merchants, uh, then uh, you know we would definitely love to chat, right?
0: It sounds like the beginning of a wonderful new partnership. <laughs> awesome, yeah. <laughs> um amelia i'd love to bring you in as well um what, what did you think on this hsbc thing because you know you look at it and you think yes this is a really good fit for hsbc's brand but there's a bit of me that's thinking well you know what about some of the fintechs you know what about a, a revolute or a monzo or you know a starling have, have they missed a trick here you know great for hsbc how come you know how come they were first like where, where's everybody else
3: i don't know i think that would be a question for Colin more than it would be a question for me of why why the fintechs <laughs> didn't sneak in there before HSBC. But I mean, hopefully this means that it sort of paves the way for more similar partnerships and more increased accessibility and inclusion for, for groups of people that are largely underserved. I mean, we talked about the fact that it's a, it's a largely profitable market, but it is still pretty underserved. Um, the specific mention of Revolut, they just a few weeks ago, published data on students specifically, but the amount of international money transfers to students, I think it was more than 100% increase. Um, 100%
0: increase since since when?
3: Since the previous year. Wow. So I think, maybe this is one that we want to double check. But um, I think that if that was a group of people who had access to bank accounts, obviously it's great that we have so many fintechs that are increasing the ease and ability of money transfers and reducing the fees that banks typically have. Um, but if larger groups of people just could open a bank account in the first place or have access to credit cards, then maybe that wouldn't be necessary. Maybe they wouldn't be having to transfer such large volumes of of money from abroad.
0: Colin, how how much of the problem for sort of new migrants to a country does does this solve? I mean, obviously, it's great if you can take your your credit record with you and use that to sort of build in life in your new country. But are there still a whole series of other barriers that that migrants face when they move to a new country, of financial barriers specifically?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you, I mean, maybe the, the place to start is just to uh, acknowledge that, you um, We can serve immigrants from countries that have the requisite level of credit reporting infrastructure in the first place, right? If you come from a country that simply doesn't have credit reporting infrastructure or a mature consumer lending landscape as an industry, um, then, you know, you're, you're going to be limited in your ability to benefit from your, um, from a service like this. Um, I do think that the, number of challenges that newcomers face is is broader, certainly within financial services, um, but also even more broad outside of financial services. And um, we know that it extends across many goods and services. One area that we often hear from newcomers complaining about is Getting access to I mean, it depends a lot on your journey and what you're doing. If you're a student and you're arriving, um, you know your your needs are maybe very different than if you are a working professional with a family who's trying to move over multiple people and is very concerned with finding the right amount of space. Um, but there are a number of a number of, of challenges. I mean, certainly the legal system, the immigration system presents unique challenges. Um, financial services is an important part of that, but it's not the end of the line.
0: Sure. What this? Why is this so hard? I mean, there, there are you know, fintech has done a fantastic job as an industry in solving a number of problems, but it's sort of still surprising that credit ratings are still so national. You know, we have you know, Visa and Mastercard and so on have existed for decades, and yet credit ratings are still very sort of national. Why is it so hard to to do this um, across multiple countries? Do you think?
4: Uh, it's a great question. Uh, so I think the I, one, it's hard because it's hard, right? Like I think the the you know the 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 collection of data, the who is who gets to control that data, like who would who would who would manage such a system, right? Who would we trust to manage that kind of thing? From a national point of view, you have a government, you know, ultimately uh, uh, they they run, you know, they 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 set the framework and the legislation by which you can gather this kind of and store this kind of data. There are lots of contrary other things around data privacy, that kind of stuff that. That means that this this stuff is is a genuinely tricky problem to to work out how you solve for it. I think then then it's a question of yeah who, who would who would manage and regulate that. And mm-hmm. I think as Colin said, in some countries there's good regulation, in other countries there's none, and so finding the stores of that data is hard. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a really hard problem. Uh, and. You know, the one place that I've certainly seen it uh, with migrants as well is in uh, is in property. So you know, kind of getting uh, sorting out rent and that kind of stuff. People are looking for history or some way to validate that, that you're, you're there. So there's lots of places where that financial reputation uh, is is super important. And I think yeah, it's still one of the kind of uh, hard, ungreased gears of the system that that, that uh, has taken time. Uh, and and it, like I say, there's nothing that's um, Yeah, there's no magic here, right? Like, it's just a lot of hard work, right? It's a lot of, you know, what what Colin's doing is it's finding those data sources, working with the local governments, local regulators to find ways to extricate that information in a way that they feel comfortable with.
2: Maybe just building on Sean's point, if I I can jump in for just one minute, I think it's a really um, smart insight about data governance and who actually controls the data. If it were the case that there's no global... Credit registry system. There's no global identity system. So we're instead dealing with a bit of a patchwork of systems that have grown up organically over time in isolated contexts, all solving similar problems of how do you manage individual consumers' credit reputation over time? But they do it in slightly different ways, and those differences create a lot of barriers. One of the key aha moments for us as a business early on. Was recognizing that the only common denominator in every country in the world that has a credit reporting system is that consumers have a legal right to access their own credit data file. And that right is not circumscribed by where you are physically located. (laughs) So under UK law, you have the right to access a copy of your credit report from licensed CRAs. And there's, it doesn't say you can only do that if you're sitting in in London. (laughs) If you're sitting in New York, you can do the same thing. And so that, um, puzzle piece I think is very important to understand it's really the consumer who's at the center of the transaction they're the ones raising their hand saying I want a copy of my credit file from the US from the UK from Canada from Brazil and I want to use it for my own benefit to help me you know get started in this new location and that's that's a really important construct we provide that infrastructure and that platform to execute that transaction but there's not some Nova credit database <laughs> that is a super database or something like that
0: that's, that's a really, really interesting insight. Well, I need to bring this, we need to bring this story to a close. But congratulations, Colin, on everything that, that you and your, your colleagues have, have built. I think Sean articulated well some of the challenges that you, you've, you've overcome. Um, so last quick word to you, Colin. Um, what's next for Nova Credit? More countries, more banks? Um, what, what's, what's next on your agenda? Very quickly.
2: Yeah, we're here in the UK. We're open for business. So we're a licensed uh, CRA now. We're working with one of the flagship financial institutions. Um, um, I think the UK, like all developed economies, is in a position of, of demographic decline where the only source of growth is from inflows of newcomers. The UK grew by a million people last year, but 100% of that growth was from newcomers. And so we're excited about the prospects. We see a lot of opportunity to work with, with more um, types of businesses in the UK. As a business, we continue to add more outbound countries, source countries, from which we retrieve data. Um, We've got a lot of exciting things um, coming in the next few months on that front as well.
0: Fantastic. Okay, our next story was reported in Fintech Futures, but lots of other places covered it too, which is that Mercedes-Benz and MasterCard are trialing native in-car payments at petrol stations across Germany. So the new partnership means that MasterCard debit or credit card holders can now pay for petrol in their car using the Mercedes Pay Plus service. Mercedes Pay Plus uses fingerprint technology to verify the customer and is synced to the vehicle, which means it can calculate the required amount of fuel and cost mid-transaction. It's been launched to more than 3,600 petrol stations across Germany, but the partnership with MasterCard means it can now target a wider expansion of payment services. Mercedes Pay Plus was launched in March this year, but initially only supported payments for Mercedes Benz e products and services via its online store or the Mercedes Me app. Following the announcement, Chairman Franz Reiner confirmed that Mercedes Benz is working on further integrations. So let's come to you first on this one, Amelia. Are in-car payments the next big thing or are they just a fad?
3: So I'm going to hedge this and not get a oh, concrete answer because I don't <laughs> want uh, to be responsible for, for saying that it is or isn't. But I do think that it makes sense as a sort of next step. And I think uh, beyond uh, using your phone or using your face or using your fingerprint to pay for something, it's not that big of a leap. Uh, to think that you could pay for something from the comfort of your car. Um, So I think that it's not necessarily the next big thing or a fad. I think that long term, it makes sense that payments are going to be able to be in different places beyond just your phone or your laptop or whatever it might be, or in person if we're going old school. Um, I think that sort of this infotainment system is how they described it, is what's in your car if you think about it, it doesn't necessarily seem that different from having an iPad or a tablet of some kind, the location is just in your car. So is it that helpful necessarily? Are you removing that much of a a friction in the payment process? Maybe not, but is it that great a leap from just getting out of your car and tapping your, your Apple or Google or whatever wallet? Not really.
0: Exactly. Sean, I want to come to you as the, as the as the payments guy. The thing I'm missing here is if I have to fill up my car with petrol or diesel or whatever, I have to plug it in. I have to physically get out of the car and plug something into it. So if I'm already out of the car, am I missing something or is it maybe is payments, sorry, is, is fuel payment maybe not Actually, the the best use case for this. Am I missing something? What do you think, Sean?
4: Yeah, I, so uh, I'll, I'll hedge and not hedge. So uh, in my answer, so I think yeah, I, I, on the particular use case, I don't know. I can have an opinion about it. I think you know, uh, it, I there's I can see some value being added by the car being able to. Be smart about the amount of petrol it wants to take, or you know, think about that, and re- and as a result, you know, reduce fraud. Or you know, I can see that these these numbers uh, make sense in terms of the amount of fuel that I'm providing. I think on the area where I, where I won't hedge is, I think what we're seeing is uh, you know a, a proliferation of how of payment being embedded into different experiences. That can only be a good thing, and it's been enabled by a couple of key uh, technologies that have been driven by the schemes and payment providers so uh, one of them is delegated authority so you know one of the things that we have in in payments is always the ability to try and establish your identity as a key element of that uh, and as part of the 3DS spec you know that was very uh, heavily you know described how that should work uh, uh with with uh, with a card payment so we have the one time passcodes or the authentication with delegated authority um you know we we you can essentially uh, go through a process by which you can be, you can be in charge of that authentication. This is what Mercedes are doing is saying, Hey, look, we've got a fingerprint scanner in a car that should be you know good enough to qualify for these kind of uh, ways that, that we can authenticate the payments without adding additional friction. So, you know, they're leveraging that technology to do that. And then the other one is kind of the cloud token frameworks, which allows uh, you to specify a, a trusted device. In this case, the trusted device is a car, and so again, it's kind of adding a a a layer of identity and security to that transaction, which means you can reduce the friction associated with it. And so, there are really on that side, I can really see sort of the benefits. It means that, that that it becomes a less challenged transaction because of the fact that you're adding these other factors. Now, whether this particular use cases the best use of all those things, you know, let's see. I'm I'm sure uh, others will have their opinion on that. But but I think it is good to see that the 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 technologies that the schemes have been launching are being used to drive innovative use cases.
0: It's the is the use case here perhaps parking where you know, there's a myriad of different parking systems. Every single car park seems to have a different system and you end up with, you know, dozens of different apps on your phone, none of which ever seem to work. Um, <laughs> Colin, what, what, what do you think?
2: I think it's a smart. I mean, I think, I think Sean touched on it as well. I think this particular use case, I almost see it as a the kind of thing that's a, attempting to get a little bit of attention for an underlying technology that's really about its out capability Um, taking the payments and embedding it into a different device, as Sean put it. Um, and I do think something like parking makes a lot of sense. I know I personally fumble quite a bit (laughs) when I go into parking garages, even street parking. There's different, a myriad apps you have to download and, and, and use to pay. And it's quite, that's actually quite a frictionful experience. Everyone goes through it because you have to. Um, but I could see the pain as a user or a driver, um, associated with that being high enough for me to really care. About um, paying through, you know, validating my fingerprint on my car and getting out, walking away, and not thinking twice about it.
0: Amelia, do you think there's a big opportunity for the, you know, for the for the car industry to, I mean, not replace the credit card by you know turning a car into a payment device, but <laughs> but do you, do you do you think there's a do you think there's a wider a wider opportunity? Is this do you think this is the beginning of a new thing where maybe a whole bunch of things that we're buying for our car or related to our car or even other things we're just getting for the home is this the beginning of a new frontier um or is this just a gimmick
3: yeah i mean it might be i think parking is definitely the use case that springs to mind as the the thing that makes sense but there was research done that was part of this um announcement by GFK, which on behalf of MasterCard, which said that 60% of 18 to 39 year olds would prefer to pay for their petrol using a built-in payment system. So as much as to me and to all of us, maybe it doesn't really make sense if you're getting out of the car anyway, apparently 60% of this age group would prefer to pay using that. And there's an increasing number of people that said that they would be happy to use it to pay for other things. Now, to me, Using my car to pay for something completely unrelated to car products seems a bit odd. Um, but again, if it's, if you're using your phone, if you're using your face ID and it's connected to your car in some way, then it doesn't seem like that great a leap to be using that as your method of payment. If you're in your car anyway and it becomes easy and they make it easy for you to make those payments. Maybe it starts off with being petrol or fuel or parking or car insurance and things like that first before I don't know if you're going to pay your phone bill through your car but um, and I don't think it's going to be making its way into being a, a very very large credit card anytime soon but I don't think it's a, a massive leap for it to be used especially as an identity verification as you said Sean um, for payments. But if we
0: if we think back you know we, perhaps back in about 2000 people didn't foresee the extent to which m- mobile phones would just become the way that you know millions of us billions of us potentially just pay for stuff um could it be that in 10 years time actually just paying for things from your car just seem is just a completely natural and normal thing to do that we we're just doing all the time yeah maybe is it a, maybe it's more of a is it a passenger driver thing is it that the passengers actually <laughs> sitting there <laughs> shopping away uh, sean what do you reckon
4: yeah, I think it's very possible. Given I think, and I think it's more to do with the platforms the cars run on than than anything else. If you, you know, at the end of the day, Android and iOS are taking over cars, and these are the platforms that hold our payment credentials. And so, leveraging those payment credentials in other ways, uh, you know, makes sense. I, I, I agree with Amelia. It, it probably makes sense to do them in the context of a car, you know, uh, element rather than use them elsewhere, but that, but that sphere will grow. I think the other thing, and I think the the main opportunity for the, for the car manufacturers here is, is, is the, is this kind of emergence of car as a subscription platform. Hmm. And so, um, know yeah, I think we're seeing more and more of that where, you know, uh, can I, if I want... I have a, I have a feature in my car, but to leverage it, I have to pay a subscription and, or, or pay for a one-time cost. So like, I want the aircon on, I'll pay for it. I don't know where we get to that far, but like, you know, I think you're starting to see those types of models, uh, you know, being, being started by the, the car companies. I think it's more likely to make sense in terms of fuel insurance, particularly, and, and where we get to more of as kind of like a uh, pay as you go models for, for, for leveraging a car. I can see those things you know, with embedded payments, making more sense uh less than i'm gonna do my grocery shopping through my audi right <laughs> so yeah
2: and less than until we actually get driverless cars then it might then the driver passenger shopping while driving might make a bit more sense
0: <laughs> i'm reminded of um a story It came out in, it was one of the natural disasters in the States. I can't remember when it was. It might've might been somewhere sort of in Louisiana or whatever, and there was a hurricane coming. And Tesla suddenly announced that it could extend the range of a whole bunch of cars, Oh, its cars. And I was thinking, well, if I'm a driver, yeah, that's great that Tesla suddenly extended the range of my car, but also like, well, why on earth didn't they just give me the longer range in the first place? And so sure, and I think you're making a really interesting point about did car manufacturers start sort of limiting certain features and charging, you know, is is, is driving your car going to become like a Ryanair flight?
4: Um, <laughs> well i i think i think driving car will become like choosing an airline and therefore in some cases you may pick the ryanair version in other cases you might pick the 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 virgin or the emirates version of of the of the car that you uh, experience that you want right
0: i guess mercedes benz probably wants to be the emirates of 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 car uh, providers rather than the, the the ryanair but maybe i should shut up before i get in trouble right <laughs> Let's move on. Um, we will take a quick pause here um, while
1: uh, my lawyers speak to me, and we will be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design research Strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures.
0: Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the show, a note to go and check out our most recent FinTech Insider insight show, our very own Ross Gallagher is joined by some expert guests to discuss careers in financial services. They discuss what you should look for in a career in financial services, how it's changed over time, and how fintech has changed some of the historic image problems in banking. So go and listen to that episode. Find it in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this one. Right, let's get back into the news. So our next story is from AltFi, and this is that Standard Life and MoneyHub in the UK are launching a new commercial pensions dashboard. The new dashboard will sit within Standard Life's customer app and expands on the firm's existing partnership with MoneyHub. The app already includes access to Money Mindset, which is MoneyHub's financial wellness tool, which provides customers with real-time insights on their spending and savings behaviour. The Pensions Dashboard will be integrated with this to give customers a more advanced and immediate view of their retirement savings. It will be one of the UK's first fully functional pension dashboards. The new service will launch to Standard Life's 4 million customers when the Financial Conduct Authority's regulatory approval process comes in. If successful, Phoenix Group, which is Standard Life's parent company, may expand the service out to its 12 million customers. Amelia, you reported on this story on Altify. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What exactly does it mean for Standard Life's customers? And is this good news?
3: Yes. So I think that the place to start with this is to zoom out a little bit and talk about the pensions dashboards in general, because it's both quite simple in its goal, but it's also had a very complicated journey that it's still very much on. So To know what this means for standard life customers specifically, it's helpful to know a bit of background on the pensions dashboards. So, when they eventually launch, they'll allow individuals to access all of their pensions information all in one place. So, people aren't really lifers anymore. They don't join a job at 18 and stay in it until they retire. People, on average, have 12 jobs over the course of their career. So, that's a lot of different pension pods in a lot of different places. So, What that's resulted in is around £27 billion in quote-unquote lost or unclaimed pensions in the UK. So the pensions dashboard aims to have one centralised place where people can view all of their various pension pots that they've accrued over the course of their life in one central place. Now, it was originally meant to launch in 2019. It then got pushed back to August 2023. Uh, which we've just passed, and it's been delayed again until October 2026. So when we talk about this product that Standard Life is coming out with, it's also important to know that it's potentially years in the future. We don't exactly know when it's going to be yet because that will be determined by... uh people outside of standard life's control because you need all the pension schemes and pensions providers to opt in. Um, Well, not opt in, they don't have a choice. They have to do it, but they have to connect. Um, So the deadline of October 26th is the deadline they have to connect by.
0: So you're saying this is like open banking, this is open pensions, but the regulation is just being pushed further and further out into the future?
3: Yeah, that's a very good uh, point of comparison, um, in fact. And because it started before open banking was really a thing, That's part of the reason why it's been pushed is because now that we have open banking, it makes it easier to amalgamate all these different bits of information, but it means they sort of started again. Why
0: is it taking the regulators so long? And I realise this may be an unfair question because you may not have spoken to the regulators, but why? (laughs) it seems an awfully long time to to, to delay something from 2019 all the way to 2026. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you you could have a seven-year-old child in that time. I mean, that's (laughs) bizarre.
3: I agree. I wish I could tell you. I wish I knew the answer. Um, because it's kind of baffling and, and based on the numbers, there's, there's so many people who are missing out on, on a lot of money because they have bits of their pension lost in different places that they don't know how to access. And this product would, would be a huge help. Um, so obviously it helps you throughout your lifetime b- being able to access it and have a view of your pensions. But specifically if you were, if you've, wanted to take your money out of your pension in the last seven years, um, or over the course of seven years in total, when we get to twenty twenty six, which is when it might be that this eventually comes out, there's gonna be a lot of people who in that time frame have missed out on a lot of money. So I don't really know why I think I think the open banking introduction is part of the delay, but then that also should have sped things up.
0: Colin, this sounds like um, the, a sort of problem. We need, you know, some Nova Credit thinking <laughs> to, to 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 solve. And you know, because you know, you know Amelia is absolutely right about people switching jobs. But of course, some of those people switching jobs are switching countries to change jobs, and then, and then suddenly you've not only got multiple pension pots, but you've got pension pots in different countries under different regulatory schemes. Ah, <laughs> is is this something that you you've even talked about it and overcredit as something I mean do you see any ways to, to address this
2: well yeah, it, it does strike me I'm just hearing Amelia describe the challenges it does strike me that the heart of the challenge is very similar in nature to what we discussed earlier in that you've got people taking different types of life journeys and you've got underlying data infrastructure and databases that were built in a different time under different assumptions and it's now we're trying we're in the challenging position of trying to mesh those things together and make them work and building a modern architecture that allows individuals to make choices like moving between jobs or like moving between countries and still yet benefit from the things they're entitled to in the case of pensions is something that I think is a real, really hard challenge. My, my instinct and my intuition, again, from our experience building, uh, that type of financial architecture is, um, Some sort of, yes, open banking paradigm is probably the right way to go. Having more open standards and making more interoperability and allowing consumers to be able to have the tools like dashboards to be able to um, make changes and make decisions is is probably the right way to go. I don't don't think there's a way to... um, backward integrate um, the, you know, uh, old architecture into the new paradigm. I think it's just building the, the layer on top that's going to be able to make it interoperable is probably the way to way forward.
0: As a, as a quick aside, um, among the many fantastic nominations we had for the um, 11FS uh, Fintech Awards for this year was one um, for a company called Finax, which is embracing the pan-European personal pension product. So the European, uh, European Union is trying to solve this this particular problem of of people having pension pots across multiple different countries by creating a pan European pension product. So, you know, the regulators in the EU are are actually trying to trying to move forward um, fast on this. Um, Sean, I'd love to bring you in and get your get your your take on this story. Um, it, it, Amelia's right. This is a real frustration for for workers who who move around. Um, it's really frustrating the industry isn't solving this and the regulators aren't moving faster. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I mean I am again myself in trouble here and say that I suspect that or you know, well, I have a hypothesis, so no facts. Uh that the 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 pushing out of the regulations to, to do with people not being able to build the systems quick enough, right? And uh, a lack of incentives to to do so, right? Um Uh, that's kind of certainly what happened in open banking as well, right? So, and I think, you know, any of you who have a pension in this country, uh, log on to your, your, your pensions. I don't think you're seeing, you know, a hotbed of, uh, sort of uh, uh, UX and uh, <laughs> technical capability to deliver these things, right? So um, my sense is that the, these things are—it's it, a—I I, I think I think the nation is desperate for it. Um, it's a massive, massive problem, and I think you know if we it, if it can be established, then those who embrace it and leverage it will do very well. And I think you know uh, that from a regulatory point of view. Yeah, like I said, I suspect they're just a bit hamstrung in terms of, of getting the the companies to, to all play along. I, I think the um just just the the sheer amount of money that's lost here is is criminal. Um the the incentives in, in the pension industry I think are wrong. And I think this goes a long way to to address it. If I think about do I get to choose my pension program? No, it's choose chosen by my company. Um, and you know, as a result, the incentives are there to drive to win that business, not necessarily win my business once I've left that company. And so by you, by having these systems in place, suddenly I and I, I have visibility. I can then make decisions about where I put my money uh, and what the impact of that can be. And that's just not a, a tool or a service that people are aware of. That the amount of effort that you need to go to to do that yourself is is huge, and with no guarantee of, of better outcomes as a result. And so, you know it's 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 long overdue. I kind of I can understand the industry inertia to to get there, but um, it is up to the regulators to kind of uh, you know, poke them pretty hard to get there.
0: I love that point you make about, you know, one of the problems is the pension industry is focused on the employer rather than the employees and therefore haven't got an incentive to solve it. And I, I think your hypothesis about the, the state of systems within pension companies is probably correct, but um, maybe maybe some of our listeners will, will, will tell us who are wrong. Um, Colin, the, the US with companies like Plaid and so on and, you know, the 401ks and the rollovers and so on, it's a bit further along the road here right it's easier for Americans to get a sense of their retirement savings and aggregate all of those into one place am i am I right in saying that America's just w- well ahead of the u k in this area not well ahead ahead
2: might might be a case if the grass is always a bit greener on the other side of the pond <laughs> um I, I um you you might say that i think there's there's a good as you allude there's a good proliferation of fintech tools that are being built on the back of. Open architecture to be able to allow visibility into accounts and different types of accounts. I I actually would would argue, and I, I may not be the latest up to speed here, but I'm, I'm I haven't seen as many participants in the market focusing on like pension schemes in particular um, to facilitate like uh, switching of providers and things like that. Usually, it's much more on the current account side um, or other kind of credit accounts. Um, so I think the infrastructure exists, and I um. And I think, you know, in, in the U.S., we've also got different constructs, which are even more confusing around private pension plans and 401ks that are owned by individuals or by companies. And so, yeah, it is it is a bit of a mess. Um, there's certainly not a um, clear winner or a clear um, set of tools. I think everybody just kind of muddles through it uh, at the moment a bit. But at least there is there's a bit more of the infrastructure. I think the actual application layer is still to be built.
0: Well, Amelia, maybe there's an, a new article idea for you of which, which country is furthest down the path of um, making it easy for people to track their pensions.
3: Yeah, who's ahead in the race. Indeed. Okay, uh, let's
0: move on then to our final big story of the week, which is that checkout.com is launching network tokens. So uh, Checkout.com, which we know because Sean has uh, (laughs) introduced them, has just announced that it is launching network tokens. A network token is a digital replacement of a bank card. So customers do not need to share their bank details when making payments online. Network tokens streamline the checkout process reduce the need for additional authentication at the point of sale and make the transaction workflow simpler and more secure. Checkout.com itself launched in 2012 and now deals with over 150 currencies with a number of products and payment solutions such as fraud detection and ID verification tools. So, Sean, obviously we're going to come to you first. Um, For those who aren't too familiar with this, can you just explain a little bit about what a network token is and and how it works and why it's a big deal?
4: Sure. Uh, So, Um, Yeah, many of you are familiar with with tokenization uh, sort of without knowing it, right? So tokenization has been around for a while uh, uh, initially and still in in many cases. Tokenization was a way for merchants to uh, remove the need of PCI compliance. And so PCI compliance is the sets of uh, rules and regulations that, that anyone who deals with card information has to has to do to make sure that we're all secure when people use cards. Um, but it was quite an onerous uh, level of, uh, of um, work that a merchant has to do if they want to store cards on that side. And so what they do is they tokenize. With a provider like us, and so they give us their card numbers. We give them a token, which is a a, a representation of that card, but not a card. And they, every time they want to use that card, they then give us that that token, and we then go do the, the 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 card transaction. So the merchant never has the card number, which means they, if they're ever hacked or breached, there's a there's there's no uh, there's no um, the sharing of that information um, what a network token is 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 uh, uh, an evolution of the idea that we have with a uh, uh with apple pay or google pay is a good example um they leverage network tokens already so uh, or, or often what's called a digital pan so when you when you put your card into the 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 apple wallet uh it's it's not your card that goes in it it's a digitalized token uh, and so, uh, so you, again, if, if that is ever compromised, your card details are not compromised. Only the token is compromised. Uh, so network tokens is the extension of that idea. So taking that idea of a digital token, uh, your card is turned into that digital token. That digital token is then is unique to you and the merchant. So it's only ever usable in that context. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're enabling every time that uh, a transaction happens, we can substitute your card out for a network token, we talk to Visa and MasterCard to get that network token. And then that network token then lives between, is a relationship between your card and that merchant. And so it's more secure, it's, uh, it, it's um, uh, you know, and if it's compromised, then the, the blast radius of that leak is is pretty low, because it can only ever be used in the context of of one merchant. So um, this enables, uh, it, it, often in, in payments we have, uh, we're often trading off risk versus acceptance rate versus cost. Network token is one of those nice products that increases the all of those well decreases cost, but you know, it's a it's an improvement in all of those areas.
0: How is it different? And maybe I missed it in what you said. but how, how is it the network token different from the sort of tokenization that you're doing already?
4: Yeah, so it, so the network token lives uh, beyond the acquirer or the or the, uh, uh, the the merchant provider. So in the in the original context that I talked about, that token was only made, only relevant between uh, uh checkout and the merchant and so if the merchant mm-hmm. wants if you wanted to uh you couldn't use that token with another provider what a network token does is that it, it lives in the whole scheme so that 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 network token is known to visa and therefore can be used with any number of uh, merchant providers so it's a genuine unique thing between you, your card and the merchant but can be used if the merchant has multiple payment providers or works in different countries like kind of stuff that network token is still pervasive across all of those things got it got it
0: Okay, so um, essentially this just creates more security in in payments because it reduces the number of places where customers' card details are getting stored, which reduces the risk of that information leaking out onto the dark
4: web or wherever. Exactly. Uh, the, the other key benefit is, is uh, you know we, what we term lifecycle management, but that's a fancy name for uh, you know making sure that expiry dates don't cause you to miss payments. And so, a, a network token's lifetime can be different to your card. And so, one of the other things they have is if your card expires. You can still keep your network token, so we can update that in, that 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 link in the background. So if you've used that card as a subscription uh, or something like that, then actually beyond the 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 life cycle of that card, that can still keep being charged. Or if you have a lost or stolen card, it's been replaced. It doesn't mean you have to replace your card within uh, a, a, a merchant where you've stored those card details. So there's a lifetime. There is a benefit to the consumer in that uh, they can uh, uh, you know not have to update all their card details everywhere. Uh, once those cards expire or have something bad happen to them
0: so so technically in the background as, as checkout.com so let's say my card has expired and and presumably my bank is issuing a new me, me a new one and maybe i've already got it digitally but how do how do you know that, I, that i've got a new a, a new card and i haven't closed that account down presumably are you checking in the background or is it just a safe assumption that it's
4: still valid no yes So we're going back to the schemes. So the issue is updating the schemes, and then we're going back to the schemes every time that card's used to say, hey, is this card still valid? Is this token still valid? Do we need to update the network token? If so, yes, no or kill it right yeah so it doesn't mean we're automatically gonna, uh approve that transaction it, it means that we're in the background constantly updating that information to make sure that the, the card details that we have and the tokens that we have are valid tokens to process transactions the issuers are doing the same on their side so uh they're constantly talking to the schemes to make sure that they're updating the the schemes with that updated information of whether your card's been lost stolen updated uh, all of that information
0: and will customers consumers Will consumers even see this? Will consumers be aware? I mean, you know, are, are Amelia and I already using network tokens and we just don't realize? Will, will customers have to do something new or is this um, in the background?
4: No, So, yeah, it's, it's completely transparent to, to consumers. So um, you don't know it's happening. Invariably, some of your cards are already to- network tokenized. Uh, the, like I say, the, the biggest thing that people observe is that, you know, that card they thought expired is still being used for Uber or something, right? Like that's that's something. And I don't think the issuers have done a great job in explaining that to them. Now, network tokens aren't the only way that happens. There is also uh, a technology which we also uh, are launching called Real-Time Account Updaters, which does this without the need of uh, of network tokens. But basically a similar principle where if a card's expired, we go back to the scheme and say, hey, is is there an updated version of this card? If there is, great, we'll get that. We'll use that instead. Um, And this this is a huge, um, you know, for some merchants, this makes a massive difference in terms of the number of payments that get accepted. Uh, And it's also, you know, a benefit to consumers because it means they don't have to update those card details whilst maintaining all the security that sort of sits around with that. So, so yeah, I mean, you, you, what you see as a consumer will be pretty small, but but it is it is important that you understand what's happening.
0: Got it, Amelia. What do you what do you think of this news? Do you think this is uh, do you think this is exciting, or is this something that's going to sort of go over the heads of uh, well, clearly consumers? Um, but is this ex- is this exciting for merchants? Do you think? What do you, what do you reckon?
3: Well, can I can I ask a question first? Yeah, to please. Sean? Do the network tokens then, in theory, never expire?
4: Uh, no, they can expire, uh, but they expire. Okay. They're, they're less likely to
3: expire. When you say less likely, does that mean it's determined? Who is that determined by?
4: So it's, it's usually determined by the issuers. So, like if they if they say, look, this card should not exist anymore. you should not be able to do any more payments. At the end of the day, the, at the end of the day, the same flow still happens. Ultimately, that network tokens getting turned into a real card detail, which is. Then, whenever you do a payment, the issuer is deciding whether that payment should be uh, allowed or not, and that can be for a whole bunch of reasons: fraud, not enough money, all that kind of stuff. All of that flow still takes place, right? So, so there's no uh, added risk in there. It's more, it's it's more that that um, that it just won't be compromised, and we can manage the life cycle.
0: Is this, to some extent, the beginning of or a continuation of the sort of separation of Identity from particularly the physical card, right? I mean, the, you know, the credit card was an amazing invention. Credit cards have been amazing; they've done so many things for so many people. But over time, really, you just you need to be able to authenticate the, the customer is who they say they are, and you need to confirm that they have funds, either credit or debit. Um, you actually don't need the card, or even necessarily the card number. I mean, the, again, the credit card number, brilliant invention, but at some point, it's, is this just part of the gradual evolution? away from the credit card number because there are now other ways of authenticating that the customer is who they say they are and that they have good funds
4: yeah i, I think i think that's definitely a true i think you know there's two elements right there's identity and, and verifying identity is, is is one area and then there's uh um the metadata associated with a payment that allows us to uh decide what that payment what we should do with that payment so whether that's from a to prove it's more uh, likely to be where it says it's from all those sorts of things. And so, yeah, this is, this is a, uh, you say, I I think abstraction is the right, is the right term. You know, there's, there's a lot of cards become very institutionalized in the way that people think about payments. doesn't mean they're always correct. And so this is leveling up their, the ability to secure that data as it flows through the networks, whilst also providing the levels of metadata that all the players need to be able to make good decisions about those payments.
0: Thank you. Colin, I'm sorry, I didn't give you a chance to, 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 to chime in. What do you think?
2: No, not, not at all. I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating. I love any advances that uh, drive uh, greater abstraction away from um, the kind of um, uh, fragmentation um, that existed um, in old systems. And I think that the Ability, I guess, as I understand it at least, it helps to preserve continuity of the relationship between the merchant and the consumer, the tr- person driving the transaction over time and across geography. And it just makes it a better user experience in that way as well. So, um, one one question I had, Sean, if, if you don't mind, um, does it do network tokens? I understand that they reduce the prospect of bad actors getting access to sensitive information by reducing the surface area of like where the sensitive information is stored um are there other benefits from a user journey perspective in terms of authentication is authentication um at a higher standard or is it in other ways um less risky so
4: it, it, authentication is necessarily a high standard but because of the all the reasons we've described, there's. There's, you can you know, factor that into your decision making about whether you want to challenge a transaction, and so uh, there are many things that go into that. So, uh, you know, any, all the players in that in the ecosystem will be making decisions based on the data they have about whether that whether they should trust that transaction, put that transaction into more of a more more of a challenge state, so give you the one time passcode or make you authenticate that transaction. So, by having a network token, that's a that's a a good signal that this is less likely to be a fraudulent transaction it's not the only signal but it's definitely one that's there and that's one of the reasons we see better acceptance rates for for network tokens the, the other thing that's important to, to um to talk about here as well is you know like anything in payments uh there's relative uh adoption across all the players in the in the market and so some banks are faster than others to adopt this and so what's really important and something that we we provide is uh know, yeah, machine learning that sits on top of this to say when should we use the network token or not? So if if the if we know that the network to, the the issuer on the other side is not great at accepting network tokens, then we'll revert back to the pan in the transaction. So that's intelligence that we're providing on our side. We're constantly running experiments to make sure what's the most likely way for this transaction to go through. What's the safest way for this transaction to go through? And we'll sort of then uh, uh, dynamically decide whether the, the original card or the network token should be used at the time of the transaction.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Sean. Congratulations to, to you and your team and thank you for educating I think I think your, your, all of your fellow panelists uh, as, as well as uh, most of our listeners, um, but really, really exciting stuff. Okay. So now for Big Click energy, which is a quick fire roundup of some of the more clickworthy news of the week um and we have a story about from Reuters about JP Morgan Chase banning crypto payments from October the 16th all crypto payments will be banned by JP Morgan's UK bank due to a rise in fraud and scams Chase In the UK, launched two years ago and now has um, 1.6 million customers with plans to expand to other markets in the future. However, crypto has been a cause of concern in the UK due to the increased use of crypto for financial crime and chases the latest lender to throw restrictions on it, following in the footsteps of NatWest, Santander and others. Um, If you like this story, go ahead and subscribe to our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider, where Maurizio Magaldi and guests discuss all the big issues in crypto. So we've had this story on uh, Fintech Insider before, and it's quite a controversial one, right? Because does stopping people from moving their money where they want to really um, get to the root causes of crime? It certainly slows it down. It certainly causes people to think. But isn't the real issue actually just trying to fix some of the fraud in crypto rather than preventing customers from moving their money into it? Our second story is that SWIFT and WISE have partnered to improve cross-border payment options. This was reported in the papers. So uh, the communications provider SWIFT and global money transfer fintech WISE are partnering to create better cross-border payment options for financial institutions around the world. This collaboration means SWIFT payment messages can now be routed through the WISE platform. So customers sending money through WISE will get additional SWIFT features, including payment status tracking, thanks to SWIFT's GPI technology. This is fascinating. This is a collaboration between a fintech and one of the kind of the old guard of financial technology. Really, really interesting. Swift, a huge influence, huge, you know, rooting for uh, corporate, large corporate transactions. Wise, uh, obviously, you know, huge presence in smaller, you know, consumer payments. Fascinating to see these two collaborating. Really, really interesting. Third story, busy week. Uh, Fujitsu is trialing generative AI for Japanese banks. Fujitsu is getting into the fintech game through new generative AI technology to improve banking operations. Hokuriko Bank and Hokkaido Bank will be the guinea pigs for Fujitsu's new AI platform, which will support services ranging from everything from internal inquiries and document verification through to program creation. It comes at a time when regulators around the world are looking closely at how to manage the use of generative AI tools in banking. And, you know, this one is possibly the most profound story. The impact of generative AI on middle offices in banks around the world is going to be huge. There are so many tasks that can be simplified and streamlined using generative AI. It's kind of scary. Okay, now for the and finally section of the show, a look at something a bit more offbeat uh, from the news this week where I bring my three guests back in. So a British man has been jailed after trying to disguise £70,000 of criminal cash as a sandwich, according to Essex police. A lorry driver from Essex in England was stopped by the police after driving the wrong way, apparently trying to avoid detection. Oops, that worked well. Um, on closer inspection, the police arrested the man after what appeared to be his lunch, nicely wrapped in tin foil, proved to be £70,000 worth of cash. After investigating in conjunction with the proactive money laundering team, they secured a charge. The criminal and a dangerous driver is now safely behind bars. Um, Amelia, what do you think? Is this, <laughs> is this just a not very smart criminal or is that a cunning plan?
3: I mean, I think the most confusing part of this to me is the driving in the wrong way to avoid detection and that seemingly being the thing that caused him to be detected. But um it's quite funny if you look at the picture, and it's just a tin foil, piece of tinfoil with a lot of cash inside it. Um, so I don't know. Is
0: how, how glamorous is is financial crime? I mean, are are most financial criminals incredibly sophisticated? You know, uh, you know, white collar, you know, computer programmers, or are they actually just sort of a bit a bit hapless? Sure, uh, Sean, what, what what do you see it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
4: I, i'm glad to say i don't really know because i don't hang out with uh, too many financial criminals but um, I, it sounds like an expensive lunch. I mean, I, I worked in FinTech and had some uh, expensive lunches, but never 70 grand's worth. Um, I think, I, I, the, the, like, like every system, it's uh, it's only as strong as its weakest link. And uh, uh, I think uh, if you've got a driver who does want to drive down the wrong way, uh, down a the road, then uh, I think you need to uh, look at your overall uh, money laundering uh, uh, processes, right? Uh, but I don't want to give uh, criminals <laughs> advice. So. All
0: right, question for all three of you. Um, what's the strangest place? You've either stored cash or found cash um, uh, in, in your lives? Um, Colin, that's a bit of an unfair question, but um, <laughs> what's the strangest place you've ever stored cash?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I've ever stored it in a you know the proverbial under the mattress um, before. I think I, I once stumbled across, my, my parents had some cash in their closet in a shoebox um, when I was a child and I remember thinking that, um, isn't it safer to keep it in a bank? Like, shouldn't, what are we doing here?
0: Oh, parents cash in a shoebox. I'm used to children raiding their you know, parents' drinks cabinets, but find, you know, raiding the money store. Amelia?
3: Yeah, I don't think I have anything particularly out there. I was trying to think about this and it made me think of the first, it wouldn't have been the first, it would a sort of piggy bank that I had when I was a child, which was when I opened my first bank account, which is what I was thinking of, which I got a little red safe from HSBC to keep my money in. And it looked it was meant to be a safe, but it really made me think of American lockers like in high schools, and I thought it was really cool. Um, but it was just a little red safe, and it had a little key lock and a a dial, and I thought that was great. And I Googled it before this, and they were being sold online on eBay as a vintage item, which made me feel a bit sad.
0: <laughs> how, how much for?
3: Not a lot. It was £14. Pounds. But the people who bought it were very pleased with it. So,
0: And how about you, Sean?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, my story is very similar to Amelia's, uh, but I may even
4: predate uh, her. Uh, I may be so bold to say. Um, so NatWest, uh, this was how you used to get um, uh, children to bank was to give them free piggy banks. I think mean, that was like that was the incentive to to open a, a child account, and so they had these kind of a collection of pigs that were kind of NatWest branded, that were the kind of, uh, that's where you sort of, uh, that was their enticement to open a, a child account. And so I had one of those, uh, and, and used it for many years. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, no, I, other than that, I don't think there was anything particularly odd that I, that I, where I stored money.
0: I remember traveling years ago, um, in the days when there were things like traveler's checks and I had a certain amount of cash in, I think it was us dollars. And I put them in a money belt, um, you know, sort of wrapped around myself. But this being a tropical country, um, you know, by the end of the day, the money bulk was quite sweaty. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure I can actually spend this money because I need to actually probably launder it. <laughs> anyway, so that was, um, that was a mistake, carrying the money that way. But uh, these days, uh, you can use uh, network tokens. So, you know, who needs cash? All right. Our producer says that uh, he knew someone who kept their savings in the fridge. Um, so really, that puts Colin's shoebox, Colin's parents' shoebox into to shame, really. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up this week's uh, FinTech Insider. Thank you so much uh, to my three fabulous guests. You've been amazing. Where can people find out a little bit more about each of you and the work that you've been doing? Um, Amelia, uh, ladies first.
3: Thank you. Uh, you can find me writing on altfi.com. Uh, You can send me an email. It's just Amelia at altfi.com or add me on LinkedIn, Amelia Isaacs. Colin?
2: Thanks for having me. Uh, Feel free to find out more at novacredit.com or find me on LinkedIn, Colin Yelster. And Sean?
4: Yeah, uh, so check out all our products and our new launches are on checkout.com and you can find me uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Sean Parker. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor,
0: you can find me on LinkedIn or you can find out about all the great work uh, that the team are doing at 11ofus.com. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed it. Please do join the conversation on social media. Um, Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.